Thank you, Chad. And it is a great joy for Lisa and I to be here. We, still, we remember when this church was just a faint idea in Chet and Phyllis's minds. And I remember sitting at their kitchen table in their apartment, looking at the various uh, financial plans that they had and talked about taxes and all these other things to try to get them ready to go and to come. And, and you know, being a church planter is it's a unique job. You're basically going to walk into a town where you know no one and ask God to create something out of nothing. And it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of um, it takes a lot of uh, fatigue and 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 sweat and and just passion and love for Christ. And so I hope you truly appreciate uh, what you have in Chet and Phyllis. They work very hard. They have great wisdom. Uh, they take care of their, Phyllis takes care of the kids all day as Chet takes care of the church. And uh, I just ask that you would uh, uh, greatly appreciate them and show them your appreciation. And remember that as they're pouring out into you, sometimes they just need someone to come and put their arm around them and pour a little bit back into them. So uh, just remember that as as you look around and see what the Lord has brought together here. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you have sent Jesus to die for us and that Jesus is the head of the church and that he is building his church. Thank you that he's building his church right here in Champaign-Urbana. Thank you, Father, that Jesus has called Chet and Phyllis to come and be, be the means by which he helps to build this church. And I pray for them this morning that your hand would be upon them both. Strengthen them every day. Draw them closer to you every day. Show them their sins every day so that they will cling to the cross of Christ. Father, I pray you would draw them closer to you and closer to each other. I pray you would help their children um, grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and that you would save their souls as they grow. And we pray for this church, Father, that this would be a community of deep love for one another, that they would love you first and then love one another, and they would help one another and support one another. I pray that every parent would be, would, would be blessed by the fact that they know that there are people here who care about their kids and want to help their kids and are praying for their kids. I pray, Lord, that you would do a marvelous work in deepening this community every week, week after week, as they they come together. And we pray, Father, that you you would send your spirit into this town and that he would go out and begin to convict this area of their sin and of their unrighteousness and of their need for Jesus. Father, and I pray that the gospel would go out from here to fertile and ready hearts who want to hear it, who want to receive it, and want to join them in uh, proclaiming your name and bringing glory to Christ. Father, we pray you would do a great work in this town, through this church, for your glory. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I sit and think about Jesus, his person and his 
work, what he, who he is and what he's done. Like the song we just sang, like this whole service has really encouraged us to do. Do you know what I find fascinating? Everything. I mean, literally everything. And here's just one example of how fascinating Jesus is. Jesus came to earth to die on the cross as a substitute for sinners and a sacrifice for sins. But his work is so amazing that the Bible doesn't have just one way to describe it, but deploys lots of different words to show us all the angles and dimensions and perspectives and facets of what he's done. So in Luke 19.10, we're told that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus saves sinners. But Galatians 2.16 tells us, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus justifies sinners. And then in Titus 2.14, we're told that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. Jesus redeems sinners. These words all describe the work that Jesus did for us. They all point to the same betrayal, the same trial, the same cross, the same bloody death, and the same empty tomb. But each word sees, this, sees the eternal trouble we were in from a different angle. Calling Jesus our Savior reminds us that we were lost and wandering and unable to find our way, but Jesus came and found us. The word justified brings us into a courtroom where a sentence stood against us and condemned us and shows us that Jesus endured our penalty. The word, or excuse me, calling Jesus our redeemer reminds us that we were slaves to sin and that Jesus bought us back and set us free. It doesn't matter how bad things were for you. It doesn't matter how much trouble you were in. It doesn't matter how horrible your situation was. Jesus attacked it, defeated it, and rescued you from it. That's a great savior. But our multifaceted predicament is only one side of the work that Jesus did on this earth. On the other side is God the Father. Jesus didn't just rescue us out of our trouble. He also transformed our relationship with God. And so in Colossians 2, 21 and 22, it says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before the Father. Jesus reconciled us to the Father. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have peace with God, excuse me, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus turned our war against the Father into peace with God. And in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, we're told that in love, the Father predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Jesus brought us into God's family. Now, as a sinner, when I think about my own life, I can really feel the weight of what Jesus did to get me out of the quagmire of my sins. But when I read the Bible, I can't help noticing uh, that restoring the relationship with the Father is more important to him. 
In fact, I get the idea that the saving and the justifying and the redeeming were done ultimately to achieve the purpose of the reconciliation and the peace and the adoption. Look with me at the first four verses of Revelation 21. This is a picture of heaven. And it's a, basically a picture of the end result of Jesus' work on this earth. And as we look at this picture, we don't see golden streets or pearly gates or mansions just over the hilltop. It's all about the relationship we have with God. Listen, Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For for the former things have all passed away. What makes heaven so heavenly isn't the paving material used on the streets or the unusual construction of the gates or the square footage of the houses. What makes heaven heavenly is that we see God face to face and live with him in unadulterated joy forever and ever, all because of the fascinating work of Jesus Christ. Now, this sermon is about the pursuit of personal holiness in the Christian life. I'm starting it out by talking about Jesus' work of reconciliation and relationship that he gave us with the Father, because my point in this sermon is that holiness can only be properly pursued as part of the relationship we've been given with God through Jesus Christ. If we don't pursue holiness as part of our relationship with God, then we'll always have problems becoming holy. For example, if we think of our salvation as a legal status instead of as a relationship, then we could come to the conclusion that holiness isn't all that important. After all, once the pardon for my sins has been issued, there can be, and there can be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, even swimming in the sewer of my sins wouldn't be able to condemn me to hell. Therefore, personal holiness is irrelevant. But that's like saying, if I lived in a country that forbids divorce, I can sleep around as much as I want because it can't hurt my marital status. Now, that may be true, but marriage isn't just a legal relationship. It's also, and mainly, a personal relationship. And sleeping around tends to have a negative effect on the personal relationship, no matter where you live. So even if a lack of personal holiness didn't revoke the pardon, it will certainly certainly damage the intimacy of the fellowship we have with God. Or another example, if we think of salvation as a goal to be achieved instead of a a relationship we've already been given, then we might try hard to clean ourselves up so that we can become acceptable to God. 
The objective then is to earn a relationship with God by following the rules of the church or obeying the Old Testament law. It's like a man who lives in a place where getting a divorce is easier than ordering a pizza. He's so afraid of losing his wife that he spends all his time trying to win her affections, like he's in a continuous dating relationship and never just loves his wife and enjoys the marriage relationship he already has with her. The passage we're going to look at today helps us pursue personal holiness without falling into either one of these two traps. So please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. In this passage, we see people who were chosen by God and saved by God being called to personal holiness. Now, since this is a text from the Old Testament, the natural assumption would be that this call to holiness is just a straightforward call to obey the law. But that's not how God called the Israelites to pursue holiness. Instead, he called them to pursue a relationship with God that he had given to them when he pulled them out of their slavery from Egypt. This passage doesn't tell us to pursue holiness so we can deepen our relationship with God. This passage tells us to pursue holiness, excuse me, to pursue the relationship that God had given to them when he pulled them from Egypt. And it tells us that we need to pursue ourselves a deeper personal relationship with God so that we can grow in our personal holiness. So I'm praying for two things to happen in your soul during this sermon. The first one is that you'll take your own holiness much more seriously. But the second one is that you'll be encouraged to pursue your relationship with God as a means of becoming more holy. All right, in Deuteronomy 10, I'm going to look at verses, uh, just read verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him? to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is an address by Moses to the generation of Israelites who were about to follow Joshua into the promised land to conquer the people who's living there and to settle in the land that God had given them and to possess the territory as the nation of Israel. Every person listening to Moses was chosen by God to be a part of the nation of Israel way back when God pulled Abraham out of Haran, brought him to Canaan, and promised him descendants too numerous to count. And every person listening to Moses was rescued by God when God visited visited Egypt with 10 devastating plagues, freed them from slavery, and delivered them from the Egyptian army. And every person listening to Moses had the relationship with God that was available to Israel through the tabernacle that they had built in the desert. On top of having this relationship with God, these people had been taught the importance of holiness of obeying God's laws and keeping his rules and observing all his statutes. This was brought home to them vividly over the previous 40 years of wandering in the desert where an entire generation of Israelites died 
their own parents and grandparents because they had been unfaithful and disobedient to God. <coughs> Excuse me. In fact, through the first nine and a half chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses recounted that depressing history of death and failure. And now, as we get to verse 12 of chapter 10, Moses starts teaching the next generation of Israelites, this faithful generation who will follow Joshua into the promised land. And the verses we just read were the very first lesson he wanted them to learn. The first thing Moses taught them is what the Lord their God required of them as his people. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Moses asks right here in the beginning of the verse. The answer, as we'll see, is that God requires them to pursue a relationship with him as his people in a way that will both motivate and empower their personal holiness. Moses lists out five requirements in these two verses, and only the last one demands obedience to God's law. All the first four demand that they pursue their relationship with their Savior and Lord. All right, let's take a look. The first relational requirement that God lays on his people is that they fear the Lord their God. What does it mean to fear God? Well, it could mean to be frightened or scared, to see the wrath and fury of God as a danger to your life or to your soul. And so Moses, after reminding the people of all the rebellion and deaths from the past 40 years, could be telling this generation that God is dangerous and they should be afraid of him. But this same word can also mean something very different. Sometimes it means seeing the greatness and perfection and glory of God and responding with a feeling of overwhelming awe and wonder and esteem. And so Moses, after reminding the people of all the ways God revealed himself to them and preserved them and provided for them and even forgave them over the past 40 years, could be telling this generation that God is great and they should be in awe of him. Okay, so which one is it? Is Moses warning the people about their dangerous and deadly God or is he reminding the people of their great and glorious God? Well, the answer isn't in the vocabulary, it's in the context. And the context that matters here is verses 14 and 15, which reads, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. And then add verse 17 to that context. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. The first requirement that God lays on his people is that they be in awe of their awesome God, the God who owns heaven and earth, the God who set his heart on love on their fathers, the God who chose them above all other peoples, the God who is great and mighty and awesome. Moses calls them to be astonished by God's greatness, to be overwhelmed by God's love, to be humbled by God's election, and to be staggered 
by God's authority. And these people had seen God's greatness and glory over and over again. They saw it when God rained down plagues on the Egyptians. They saw it when they crossed over the Red Sea. They saw it when God came down on the mountain to talk to Moses. They saw it when God provided manna in the desert for 40 years. They saw it every time God disciplined the previous generation. And they saw it in the way that God preserved his nation and kept his promises. But wait a minute here. Didn't their parents see all of this greatness and glory too? Well, yeah, actually they very much did. They saw it very, as much as, this, as their children did. And in fact, the book, but the book of Hebrews tells us that the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Yes, they saw this greatness and this glory, but they didn't believe what they saw. They saw God's glory, but because of their unbelief, they never feared God. Moses even explained this to the people when they saw God's glory on the mountain. Back in Exodus 20:20, Moses told them, "Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin." A couple of days later, they had an orgy in front of a cow-shaped idol. So seeing God's glory with your own eyes isn't enough. It takes faith to fear God. But notice that when faith turns the glory of God into a fear of God, holiness will always follow. Exodus 20, 20 again. In order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Holiness doesn't produce a reverent fear of God. A reverent fear of God produces personal holiness. Now, Christian, you have seen far more of God's greatness and glory than those Israelites did. Now, I know you've never seen a country overrun by frogs or seen a mountain smoking with God's presence or seen breakfast appear in your backyard every morning. But you have seen Jesus, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature, who is the true light who came down from heaven, who shines the light of the glory of God by the look on his face. And we see a greater glory on the cross where a better sacrifice than the tabernacles was offered, where blood more precious than bulls and goats was shed, where sins are completely forgiven, not just covered over. But remember the dead Israelites littering the desert and realize that knowing about these glorious things doesn't automatically produce holiness in your life. You have to believe You have to unite your knowledge with faith. Only faith can turn what you know and see into a fear that deepens your relationship with God. But with that faith, you can pursue personal holiness by seeing the greatness of God's glory at the cross where Jesus died for you. And so God's first requirement is that we pursue personal holiness by pursuing our relationship with God. 
The second requirement that God lays on his people is that they walk in all his ways. Now remember, these Israelites have been walking around in a trackless desert for four decades. Walking in all his ways, if taken literally, meant following God in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night in whatever direction God led them. But Moses isn't being literal here. You see, when these people cross over the Jordan River and enter the promised land, they'll stop being wanderers and start being conquerors. Their lives will change dramatically. They'll be scattered all over the land, and they'll be settled in houses and on farms. They'll stop being a camp and start being a nation. Plus, the cloud and the fire will be gone. So what then did Moses mean when he tells the people that God requires them to walk in all his ways? Well, the word walk is a common metaphor in the Bible used to describe a person's life, how he lives, what he does, the decision he makes, the circumstances that surround him. So with this requirement, Moses is actually telling them something about how to live their lives. And that's where the word way comes in, walk in all his ways. The word way literally means a road or a path, but it's a common metaphor for the principles and commitments, the code that defines the person's, defines and directs a person's life. So walking in all God's ways is a requirement that each of these Israelites, after they've received their inheritance, after they've finally settled into the land, while they're working on their farms, while they're raising their families, would keep God in the center of their daily lives in much the same way that the tabernacle and God's presence was in the center of their camp. It's a calling to live in a relationship with God even when the physical symbols of his presence, the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, are far away from them. It's a requirement to build a lifestyle that pleases God as they pursue God himself as their passion and joy. The guiding principles of a life lived with God in its center and with God as its passion are rooted in God's revelation, his laws, his statutes, his rules, his word. But walking in all God's ways cannot be reduced to a requirement of mere obedience. After all, obedience can be solely external, right? A minimal outward conformity without any desire to do what's commanded, without any appreciation for the benefits of obedience, and without any gratitude for the direction being given. And come to think of it, that's exactly the attitude that I have when I pay my state and federal taxes every quarter. And trust me, that's not the attitude that God wants when he calls us to walk in all his ways. Walking in all God's ways means loving God's commands because they're God's revelation, delighting in God's laws because they're his wisdom, and rejoicing in God's rules because they're his grace and direction in your life. It's the attitude of the psalmist throughout Psalm 119, like in verses 127 and 128. I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Or like verses 164 and 167. Seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous rules. My soul keeps your testimony. I love them exceedingly. 
Christians, the revelation we have, the wisdom we've been taught, the grace we've had lavished on us through Jesus Christ far exceeds what those Israelites had in the law of Moses. But what are you doing with it? Are you drifting through life, content to let the current of the culture carry you along with it, happy to catch glimpses of God along the way? Or do you actively order your life according to God's word, aggressively swimming against the tide, fiercely determined to walk with God in deep relationship every day? Christianity is a message we believe, and it's a truth we profess, but mostly it's a relationship we enjoy. The joys and love and peace and beauty and intimacy of this relationship should affect how we live, the decisions we make, the lifestyles we create, and the pleasures we enjoy. Too many Christians try to squeeze their relationship with God into an already busy life. But to walk in all God's ways means anchoring your life in your relationship with God, a relationship that then affects every calling of your life as a husband or a wife, as a parent and a child, as a member of your church, in the hard work of your vocation, and as a citizen of the country. And walking in all God's ways in this kind of a relationship produces holiness in our souls, as 1 John 1, 6 and 7 tells us. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The relationship, the walking with Jesus in the light produces personal holiness. We don't clean ourselves up so we can walk with Jesus. We walk with Jesus, and the relationship we enjoy with him produces a deep and lasting holiness in our souls. And so God's second requirement for his people is that we pursue personal holiness by pursuing our relationship with him. The third requirement that God laid out for his people is that they love him. And this one seems pretty straightforward, but we have to be careful to hear the word love the way those Israelites heard it and not the way a 21st century American might hear it. You see, in our day, the word love can mean just about anything. It can describe the relationship of a married couple about to celebrate their golden anniversary and the relationship of a couple of strangers who just had a one-night stand. It can describe an act of supreme sacrifice and an act of smug selfishness. Fortunately for us, Moses, back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, had already described what love for God looks like. All right, listen to verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel... The Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. When Moses told the Israelites that one of God's requirements was to love him, they knew that God wasn't looking for a casual relationship built on divided affections. 
They knew that every part of their entire being had to be engaged in the relationship, all their heart, all their soul, all their might. And this kind of love is, by definition, an exclusive love, a love without rivals. You can't love God and worship a golden calf at the same time, for example. But is love something that can be demanded? Can a young man see a girl he likes and walk up to her and say, I demand that you love me? And the answer, of course, is that we cannot command anyone to love us. But God could could demand love from these Israelites for the simple reason that he had already loved them because he had loved them first. And God reminded him of this love. Look again at verses 13 and 14. I said earlier that these verses told them how they should fear God, but one of the reasons for this fear is the greatness of God's love for for them. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your father's and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. These Israelites were loved by God before Moses showed up to lead them out of Egypt. In fact, God loved their forefathers and chose their descendants, these very people, to be his people, to be loved by him above any other people on the earth. When God required that these people love him, he wasn't demanding that they manufacture lame emotions out of thin air. He was calling them to respond to the sovereign, unconditional, covenant love that he had already shown to them. Now, Christian, the love that God has shown you far exceeds the love he showed those Israelites. He rescued their bodies from the hardship of slavery, but he's freed your soul from the slavery of sin. He dwelt inside their camp through the tabernacle, but he dwells inside your heart through the Holy Spirit. He covered their sins temporarily with the blood of goats and sheep and cattle, but he has forgiven your sins eternally with the blood of his own son. He disciplined them in the desert to prepare them to conquer the promised land. But he's disciplining you here on this earth to prepare you to see him face to face and to live with him forever. Loving God means responding to this love with all your heart, soul, and might. Nothing makes a Christian more holy than a deepening love for God. Why is that? Because nothing drives us towards sin like our worldly passions and fleshly desires. When our passion for God grows stronger, our passion for sin loses its grip on our soul. When our love for God grows sweeter, the flavor of sin becomes bland. And that combination of stronger love and weaker lusts gives us an astonishing power over temptation, habit, and deception. Like Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments. And whoever does not love me does not keep my word. 
This doesn't mean we prove our love by our obedience. This means that love is what gives holiness its power. And so God's third requirement is that we pursue personal holiness by pursuing our relationship with him. The fourth relational requirement that God lays on his people is that they serve the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul. Now, serve is another word that might mean something different to you than it meant to those Israelites. So to us, serve means working for God, you know, serving his kingdom in some way. But to them, serving God meant worshiping God. It meant bringing offerings to the tabernacle as part of their worship. The tabernacle was a place of worship, a place where the people pursued their relationship with God and sought his forgiveness for their sins and thanked God for all his blessings. Now, those Israelites worshiped the invisible God in visible ways in the building of the tabernacle with candles and bread on altars um, manned manned by priests who wore colorful robes. And they worship the God who is spirit in physical ways, with real animals sacrificed on an actual altar, with gallons of blood scattered all around, and with the constant smell of burning flesh and fat and first fruits. Even the presence of God was represented by a physical, visible object, the Ark of the Covenant. This is, the, this is the irony of the temple, of the tabernacle. The average Israelite bringing his sin offering or his praise offering to the tabernacle was at the same time in the presence of God and separated from God. Between him and the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, was the sacrifice he brought, the altar it was offered on, the priest who did the offering, and that heavy curtain that stood over the whole, most holy place. Now, Christian, you worship God in spirit and in truth. Through the blood of Jesus, you have access to the very presence of God himself with nothing in between. When you worship, you stand in the presence of God, acknowledging his greatness, appreciating his blessings, and expressing your love for him. Worship is theology experience, and emotion all rolled up into our every encounter with the living God. In fact, we could say that worship is the ultimate picture of our relationship with God, where we, the needy ones, the humble ones, the grateful ones, praise and exalt God, the all-sufficient one, the holy one, the gracious one. And relating to God in worship grows our holiness in powerful ways. First, we worship God because we're already free from condemnation in Christ Jesus. And holiness for us isn't a means for gaining acceptance. It flows out of our pardon, our forgiveness, our freedom from the curse of our sins. Second, worship teaches us that we're dependent on God, that we don't rely on our own power and strength to be better people, but on the promise of God to make us better people. And third, worship puts us in God's presence. And it's the place where our fear grows. 
It's the place where we express our love. It's the place where the place that empowers our walk with God through the evil around us, the temptations that attack us, and the sin that's inside us. When Moses asked the Israelites, what does the Lord require of you? He answered with five requirements. The first four, the ones we've just looked at, tell us that God calls us into a relationship with him, a relationship in which we fear him and walk with him and love him and worship him. It turns out that God's big requirements for his people are actually an invitation to come to him and to know him, to be in a deep and dynamic relationship with him, to be loved and to love him back. And then once we're in this relationship, he gives us the last requirement, the requirement of pursuing holiness, or as Moses puts it, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Yes, the holy God demands that his people be holy. But before he makes that that demand, he makes them his people. He rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt before he gave them the law. He saves us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ before he tells us how to live as Christians. And the lesson we typically draw from this is that we have to be saved by God before we work for God. That relationship comes before obedience. That the indicative comes before the imperative. And all of that's true. In fact, that's an extremely important lesson to learn. But I want to go one step beyond that lesson and say, not only does our relationship with God come before our obedience to God, but that our relationship with God is what empowers our obedience to God. Revelation 21 showed us that our destiny is an intimate relationship with our God that lasts forever and ever and wipes away all tears and pains and evils. By showing us our destiny, God is telling us that this is his commitment to each of us, that he's committed to giving us himself in that kind of a relationship a relationship that started the moment that we were saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So be in awe of the God who made this glorious promise. Walk with the God who leads you to heaven. Love the God who died for you and worship the God who planned it all. And then go out into the world and be holy Not an arrogant, self-righteous, inconsistent, reluctant, grumpy holiness that we tend to manufacture through our own lame efforts, but a joyful holiness empowered by your spiritual worship of God, a powerful holiness energized by your deepening love for God, a steady holiness animated by your intimate walk with God, and a humble holiness nurtured by your reverent fear of God. Let's pray together.